Welcome to the My Rules Are Better podcast. I'm Tom Barbelay. Today, I'm I'm just flummoxed to say this, but it has been nearly three months since I had the opportunity of talking with Matthew Gibson. Matthew, how are you? I'm well, Tom. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. We went to a concert last night, which I hope will be a topic somewhere in today's recording. But uh, yeah, I'm surprisingly awake, actually, having uh, returned past <coughs> midnight. But anyway, in terms of Things in terms of the past three months. Do you have any updates? What's happening with the D and D game? Oh well, uh, it's been uh, we've had some uh, missed weeks because, of course, they're young people and they have many things going on <laughs> in their lives, and they and also their families take over their lives. You know, we're going away this weekend, but I've got D and D. Never mind. Mm. Um, so it's been a few weeks since we last played, but the sessions uh, prior to that were terrific. We've been having a lot of fun, and. Um, I, uh, I sent you that uh, email with the image of the uh, that uh, one of my attempts at painting minis, and that fantastic character, that fantastic sculpt of the ogre. Mm. I've actually decided I want to try and incorporate into my campaign. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a long. I'm, I'm going to lead into something I want to talk about. So I had this idea. I, I, I like that character as well, and instead of having him ultimately as an opponent of some kind, or maybe he'll be temporarily an opponent. Mm. I want to bring him in as a, as a sort of a side character. Certainly. And one of the players is a girl who has an enormous amount of kindness in her. She's a lot of fun to be with, and she always wants to do the good thing and the right thing. Mm. And I like to present my characters with moral opportunities. Mm-hmm. At some point in a scene in which this ogre is present, she's going to have the opportunity of either slaying him, the knee-jerk reaction of all gamers, because he's the evil opponent, or saving him. And she's the right character for this. She'll be she'll be torn and she'll I, I think she'll want to somehow rescue this ogre. Which will lead to a friendship and him, you know, uh, committing himself to to her life in some regard and therefore entering the campaign as an unusual character because he's this ogre whom the rest of the community is going to want to try and attack on site. So that will also put her on uh, this thing of how to help someone, in this case an ogre, integrate into a broader society, feel accepted, and so forth. So, and I painted him as a tribute to you, thank you, for having sent me <laughs> that miniature. And in some small way, Tom Barbelay will be entering the campaign. And I have thought to name him Tom. Hmm. (laughs) I hope you don't mind. I'm honoured on a number of levels. But I I wanted to start by saying I always looked at that miniature. It's interesting, actually, like caricatures of evil, Mm -hmm. like particular kinds of miniatures. You look at them and it's clear that there's something slightly, and we're going to talk a little bit about psychedelia if we have a chance, in, in wargaming and role-playing games. But the thing that fascinates me with that character is he looks like a non-player character miniature to me as well. Mm-hmm. Because he is not... In fact, he's inc- for all the stuff that's on him, he's got a large metal spike and a variety of other things. He's got a skull, I think, pretty well on his breastplate. He doesn't look like an aggressor. In fact, his whole stance is incredibly passive. It's almost exhaustion more than anything, which is one of the things that I really like capturing. Another thing, and I'm going to have to put this photo on Facebook so people can see the photo. I might even make it the, I can make it the art of this particular 
recording as well, which is another way that people can see it. The thing that Kat, I found wonderful with the miniature is that you used, like, Tom 1988 circa miniature painting techniques to paint this miniature as well. It's interesting, actually, because I'm very much immersed in the propaganda that is miniature painting. And when I paint miniatures now, which I do very rarely because I have a shake in my hand, but I have a variety of techniques that I use, including layering and glazing and edge highlighting and all the things that I've learned over 30 plus years of watching amazingly skilled painters and actually occasionally holding their work in my hands. So I have all these techniques that I use now, which means that if I approach even the most basic, you know, three to five color miniature painting, I will still use certain shading techniques and things, which are just now implicit in the way that I do these things. But looking at that figure, I thought, there is a distilled element of miniature painting circa late 80s in this figure, which I actually think is, is perfect. I mean, it captures the elements of, of what it was back then, basically, to hold these miniatures and to paint them. And I think it's beautifully honest, actually, in capturing that character. <clears throat> it's the fourth miniature I've ever painted. <laughs> Very good. My, I, I, I make no claims to skill, either... Uh, brushwork or any of the fine techniques that have been developed. I've got a long way to go. <laughs> anyway, he does have character, and I and I do like what you said about hey, he's almost passive, uh, despite the fact he's he's holding the weapon and is clearly ready potentially for action. And that's something of the character I want to capture of Tom the Ogre hmm. in the game, is the the sense that he's done. Yes, he's a veteran, but he's, he's done with the previous life that was, was impelled upon him. Mm. That, that you fight and you seek glory and you kill and you, and eventually you die. Mm. And, and he's done with that life. I see an overbearing mother in his past that kind of thrust <laughs> him into the warlike ogre. He was far more interested in cultivating turnips or whatever ogres do when they're not fighting wars. But this guy, unfortunately, was thrust into a role which he really didn't want to do. For his brute force and pure luck in certain circumstances, he has survived through, you know, a variety. I mean, I think he actually has quite a bit of battle damage, if I remember, as well. I mean, some of the stuff that he's holding indicates that, you know, he's the armour probably covers brutal wounds and these kind of things. So I think there's so many elements, and he's such a characterful miniature. That, yeah, I, I can certainly see you taking him in a, a wide variety of, of humanist directions. He's a humanist ogre, right? Well, I, 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 I realize that ogres aren't um, traditionally endowed with great intelligence. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering if somehow uh, I, I, I know the point in the storyline where he might be introduced and that something is going to happen that perhaps even expands his intelligence. Mm. And helps him to make certain philosophical connections. And so while he still is this creature of immense physical prowess uh, with a history of, of violence, he's become philosophical mm. at just the right time when someone who is not, who is the other, who is his traditional enemy, one of the, one of the human or demi-human races, does, a, does him a good deed and helps to, to bring around this transformation. For what it's worth. Now, but, but where that leads me into talking about the, the campaign and, and D&D in, in general is, of course, this is the kind of um, pitfall that 
I'm always as a GM trying to be aware of, mm. which is that to try and impose too much of my own <laughs> story on the players, they may not bite. They, the, the story may not even head towards that, uh, that encounter that I had where they might meet Tom the ogre. I may off present a situation where, um, this particular player would be able to bring that story to life and she may not have events turn out that way. I think what is fascinating through this is Tom circa late eighties when I knew you. When I first played RuneQuest with you, the introduction of my character into the narrative form, the way it wasn't really haphazard, I was just kind of sitting around for about an hour and a half reading magazines, and then you kind of lured me up to the table and said, and, you know, within probably about 20 minutes I had been introduced into the game. But it was very much part of a kind of tapestry of jamming, which I took away. This was actually a learning point for me in my you know, whatever one would call it, GM and Korea, if one wants to use those kind of terms. Because I realized that the natural narrative and the way in which people come in incidentally in these circumstances or characters come in incidentally is really an important technique, which I historically have not seen in GMs up until you. But I've taken that and every game that I play now, particularly when I do it at work, you have a constant flux of characters. Yeah, people being, you know, they've got kids have got whatever, their character isn't there for one week, then, you know, a new player will come in. And the nuances associated with when you bring a character in is a really important nuance that certainly you, circa probably 1988, 1987, left a very strong impression on me that this was a very important part of the way you GM then, and it appears it's also an important part of the way you GM now. It certainly is, and uh, that's that's a, that's quite the compliment. Thank you, Tom. So, just to comment on um, a few other things is uh, with regard to that particular campaign that's running, uh, and how much fun we are uh, having is it's their first campaign, first time ever playing D and D, uh, and it's reminded me how unimportant a rule system is <laughs> in in a sense, certainly because of course. They're not really concerned with the rules very much. They're very much concerned with their their characters and exploring them, and the the storyline, the the sort of the action of what can happen. And I've noticed that how little attention they have played to taking up the rules per se. Mm. Even with regards to an exception is my son, who is certainly very very on the ball about his monk abilities mm. but for the others we're often having to remind them you know well you have these spells here you know and you can they could be used in these sorts of situations it's not what's important to them at all and going into the books and finding out rules and finding out how things are done they they don't care about so much they, mm. they want to play and tell the story and make choices and i find that interesting i'm, I'm enjoying it a, a great deal because back in the day, <laughs> there were uh, far more rules merchants, rules lawyers mm. around the table. And um, I think it's what, one of the things I'm enjoying about this particular group is how unimportant the rules are becoming. You had, uh, you had had some great conversations in the intervening period with uh, some callers. Mm -hmm. There were a few things 
I'd like to uh, I'd like to discuss about the points that they had brought up. Certainly, this issue of narrative. Mm. Both of your uh, other callers uh, had brought it up, uh, and it got me thinking again about narrative in gaming and how it's this. Uh, it has become a, such an overused term, both in gaming and outside <laughs> gaming. In such that it's almost lost its meaning. It now means so many different things to so many different people. Certainly. That uh, it becomes almost a pointless term to use. In fact, the definition of narrative is now the important part of the discussion, as you would have yes. heard with the conversation with uh, Barney Dicker. That was, he had to define narrative as it meant to him in the context of a variety of other things, which I th- found fascinating. But anyway, continue. And that is important because it, it seems to me almost that it, has come to mean, and I and I make reference here to the great Australian film, The Castle, <laughs> it's come to mean just the vibe of the thing. Mm. Uh, so when people talk about a narrative, you know, this is a narrative game, that means, what does it mean? It means it's a game with sort of a feeling to it. Because it doesn't necessarily mean a storytelling game. And if you just mean that, you could just say storytelling game. You know, I think maybe in literary, in the world of literature, narrative still has some more discrete concrete meaning but i feel like it's lost it in uh, so many other contexts and just to, to quote you know even just one writer about you know a narrative suggests that there is direction and purpose in place it allows us to see ourselves in, and the world in macroscopic wonder and microscopic detail mm-hmm. narrative is one of the most powerful tools for perceiving the human condition it's that's almost too bring, big of a thing to bring then to a board game. You're designing a board game, you can say it's, it's, it's got a narrative element. That's way too much for something which is just a board game. And what does it mean in terms of a role-playing game? Almost whatever you want it to mean. I, uh, it's, it's now a term I'm going to avoid using. <laughs> <laughs> a polluted term. Uh, another one you had in, uh, in your uh, things you, you thought you might like to talk about, uh, and also which was brought up by the other callers, and also by my submitting that photograph to you, the miniature, mm. is uh, gaming and excess. Minis now seem to be coming in everything. Oh, of course. If, if you've ever been on Kickstarter, and I'm sure you have, and you look at games, whenever they're producing a game, now there are minis in it. Even where the miniatures don't make any particular sense in terms of <laughs> necessary game components. You know, uh, there's a game that many people have played that I do enjoy playing called Small World. Mm. It's a board game, and uh, it has some lovely components. And there are areas on the board which are called mountains, mm-hmm. and there's a picture of a mountain. Like there's big, beautiful, snowy, <laughs> wonderful peaks. They have a p- component in the, in the game, a piece, a cardboard piece, or many of them, that you put onto the mountains to show that they're mountains. I'll let you digest that for a few seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. To my son and I, we always love to pull these out because they're the most pointless piece ever made for a board game. It's the mountain piece you put on the mountains to show that they're mountains. Well, the trap piece is also an important. I mean, as discussed with Barney, I've always found the trap piece on a board game always very curious as well. But yes, the mountain piece has its place <clears throat> there too. So in some of these games, they're, they're now coming out with miniatures that certainly aren't that are nothing but very, very expensive, large flavor things, right? Mm. And uh, it's interesting how much people now equate the value of a game 
with the quality of the miniatures it is offering, which is a long way from miniatures in the original miniatures, you know, which are used for the, uh, the armed combat type of gaming, actual real miniature gaming. Uh, and then, of course, bringing miniatures into D&D to really genuinely help the flow of the play so people can visualize where yes. they are on board. And now so many board games are coming out with, uh, with miniatures, which beautiful, yes, but totally unnecessary. And yet they help, they help the narrative. Hmm. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure if that's what you meant with that. Look, the whole reason for starting this podcast, let's, let's get back to basics, is the notion that people are disempowered by things that they delegate and pay money for in some regard as well. So when you buy the latest brand new rule system and you feel empowered by buying this thing, oftentimes the actual underlying mechanics, the the detail, the engineering, let's say, not the narrative, the engineering within these games are very simple and simple to the point where if you had just basic dice playing you know, if you understood probability in certain circumstances, you could probably create a better rule system quite easily. The multi-version games are, I think, just amazing. I wanted to talk a little bit about psychedelia as well, and I think these two things are actually interestingly connected. When I, I came, I went with my wife to what is called the Dead and Company, which is a Grateful Dead. They're basically three of the original members, maybe four of the original members from the Grateful Dead, John Mayer and his bassist playing. This is a phenomena within particularly California, Northern California, but they, it's not part of my culture, as you all know, having met me in Australia, but I do go there because it's part of my wife's culture. You know, while she was a teenager, she followed the dead. She had a dog that she took to all the shows and these kind of things. What I love, however, about the concerts is the quality of the psychedelic graphics, which are far beyond anything that I've seen elsewhere. And I have a visual receptive interest. Perhaps it was far too much Escher and, you know, psychedelic art in my early childhood. Who knows? But I love psychedelic art. And I think it's absolutely fascinating, the levels of detail. And also, if you understand anything about biology, the way you see things, the edge detection that we have in vision, for example, you know, psychedelic art plays into that as well. When I look at Games Workshop as a company, this is now a super engine that uh, produces, as you say, multiple of these miniature games, where the miniatures are slightly more important than a lot of the Kickstarters that are offered. But they have created this organ, which has gone on now for 40-plus years, creating these games with these miniatures and these rules and upgrading the rules and a new version of the rules and a new set of miniatures. And now they don't make metal miniatures anymore. They make plastic miniatures and resin miniatures. I'm going to have lunch with the two gentlemen that started this thing off 40 years ago in the UK. It's going to be terrific. I'm really looking forward to it. The thing that fascinates me about the seed of Games Workshop as a, as a thing, Citadel, all this stuff, is the use of psychedelia early on. They had very specific psychedelic artists. They had a gentleman who came over from San Francisco who was one of these psychedelic culture guys who was very represented early on in the history of Games Workshop. And if you look at their early law, the rules around the chaos demons and all this kind of stuff, which were represented in two books called Realm of Chaos, uh, the two hardcover books, Slaves of Darkness and uh, The Lost and the Damned, perhaps. Anyway, these are two hardcover psychedelic tomes, which are absolutely fascinating. 
because they have amazing artwork, but also really deep lore associated with how you perturb humanity in a variety of different directions, be it rage, lust, um, you know, constant need for change, all these kind of things. It's fascinating reading, and they're beautiful things to hold within your hand. They hold their value remarkably well to this day. Also, the rules around goblins, greenskins, in Games Workshop lore is very heavily psychedelically based. And the early gentleman who developed it, including a fellow called uh, Kev Adams, who's still, he's, he's responsible for a good number of these evil Kickstarters that you're talking about, because he creates these just amazingly elaborate miniatures, particularly around goblins and, and orcs. So here, early psychedelia creates this huge kind of commercial engine, which is far outstripped the original creators, the two gentlemen that originally, I think they sold out probably 91, that is the management buyout, and they left the company at that stage. But the, the blend that they created initially, in particular the psychedelic component, created a certain richness within the game, which then, or games that they produced, which became part of their corporate DNA. There's a lot of discussion associated with you know, psychedelia and Apple's corporate DNA, all these companies that have this element there early on. So that fascinates me as a thing. But what it creates now is this huge consumerism thing, this excess. Every, you know, every month they produce, you know, 50 plus new plastic miniatures. They have now skirmish rules because for the longest time they never had skirmish games. So they now have skirmish rules for, you know, five to 10 miniatures, very much designed to get young kids in with a small number of miniatures playing these games. But the whole thing is consumerism to the kind of broadest possible extent, which I feel slightly dirty even having anything to do with because it's so antithetical, as you describe, to this core experience that you were having in the early 80s and I was having in the late 80s in Australia. And it's interesting, actually, particularly talking to Chris Abbott, because he also came up through this, you know, the bigger kids are playing D&D in school, what, what is this thing? You know, that whole element. Whereas now, such a large portion of role-playing games and, and war games are, as you say, about pushing the latest stuff. Kickstarter Kickstarter is at its most successful in games. The figure, the miniature gaming on Kickstarter is by far the highest completion rate and success rate on Kickstarter. It outweighs every other aspect of Kickstarter, be it food, I mean, even food, which is relatively easy to complete. The miniature gaming stuff is just really heavily organized now about pumping out, as you say, a whole lot of new stuff. And I'm ashamed to say that I've supported various bits and pieces of this, but I feel very strongly that this is not what this whole thing is about. It's about imagination. It's about exploring aspects of, you know, culture and society from the micro level down to even how, how you create a state, you know, or how you create a country. I mean, all these kind of things are so intrinsically part of the gaming experience for me that I really find it very strange that it has become, and I think certainly in prior recordings I've talked about listening to these podcasts of Warhammer 40,000 tournaments in the US and just how hyper-aggressive and rules lawyer-based and, you know, so-and-so cheated because their model didn't have grenades on it and this kind of stuff. I mean, mm. you know, these really very bizarre outcrop. But in terms of the financial engine, and this is the quandary that I find myself with, their success for me is a double-edged sword. It's a wonderful thing for a start because it's introducing, you know, miscreant thinking to a new generation periodically. 
which ultimately is partially psychedelic culture as well. But it also is hyper consumerist. And, mm. and actually, that is very much part of my own psychology as well. Certainly growing up in Australia, not being able to afford these things, I think also has a, some aspect of that has kind of deeply affected me up into adulthood. The times where I've been able to afford miniatures and rule books and this kind of stuff was really from my mid-twenties on. And when I was in the UK, it became almost an emotional outpouring of the fact that when I was a child in Australia, I couldn't afford these things. Now, not only can I afford them, I know the people that make them. I know the painters that I looked in these books, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12, but I could never imagine this. Now I'm actually corresponding with the painters. I'm corresponding with the figure sculptors. So it's a very interesting thing how what I ultimately should, certainly from your perspective and my perspective as well, should be about encouraging free thought ideas, all this great stuff that comes out of this thing has also created this huge consumerist thing, which sadly also maintains it in some curious light. What say you, Matthew? Well, isn't that the, the uh, part of the traditional tension between uh, art and commerce? <laughs> you know, we, um, I, I, I hear your, your younger self very, very clearly, that fear of missing out. We do see that so much in things that are targeted at young people in particular and which end up being also targeting our younger selves, Certainly. which now that we have more money, we sort of <laughs> we, we respond to on a very visceral level, I think. And it's something that I have been semi-successful at resisting, but it does take a lot of effort. Mm. I'm a bit of I'm a bit of a monk personality these days. I, I try to have as few things as possible. So it's interesting because, of course, I I hear you on the podcast saying, I've got some lead for people. Free lead. And I'm like, ooh, 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 ooh. And I have to, I had to consciously say to myself, don't raise your hand. Don't ask for more stuff that you're probably not going to get around to painting or using. It'll be more stuff that just sits around. So I'm very careful. For example, I've got some miniatures for D&D. Very, very, very careful about buying one or two that will, will genuinely be used and that I will genuinely value. What you say reminds me, for example, of um, of the shirt industry in English, and not just English, <laughs> but uh, European football, of teams coming out with multiple strips every single year. And for our North American uh, listeners, of course, a strip means uh, the, the design of the shirt and the pants and uh, the shorts and the socks, right? So that Man United has a new away strip and home strip at least once every season to sell again to those same young fans at exorbitant fees, uh, knowing that kids are going to want to have the latest and the best shirt that matches their team. Uh, and so I guess, you know, we, we, you see that in anything where the company that makes it wants to be commercially successful as well as produce quality. Uh, how do I feel about it? I, I, I don't begrudge them, but I also want to resist being part of it. There you have it. One of the things I do like about, uh, I've noticed that I like about uh, Dungeons and Dragons products in recent years is how few they come out with in terms of the written guidebooks and stuff. Mm. They are not, they're not uh, plundering their market. They're being very careful, I find, about the number of supplements that they bring out. 
they reduced the price of all the core rule books around the time that I started the D&D game at work. So for 12 US dollars, I think you could get the player's handbook. It could have been a deal that they had through Amazon. But I was amazed how well that seeded certainly my co-workers just buying a rule book easy, you know. What I did at the end of that game was I gave away all the miniatures that I used in the game. And I'm certainly a big proponent of not holding, although as I sit around <laughs> miniature cases that I was hoping to send on to, to listeners, even though you disparage this whole thing. My perspective is that you need to give the stuff away. You need to kind of seed a world of these ideas. And particularly as you did, you seeded me with a lot of these ideas, maybe through the ogre miniature, but also just seeing, you know, the things that you had around the game. I am in a very different position now than when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, the notion of what I keep. So for me, not, aside from you, early gaming was very much connected to one specific friend who unfortunately, through a variety of factors, is no longer a friend. He came to stay with me about this time last year. And that was just the <laughs> nuclear explosion of... Uh, a friendship visits, which ended in us no longer communicating. But what I find fascinating looking back at the reasons that I have, you know, a, a small shelf, not a huge shelf, but a small shelf of very particular white dwarf issues that were really seminally important to me for a variety of things is the ability to take it physically out, periodically sit down, read through it. And it's very difficult to take one's mind back to seminal points in one's life aside from I found physical books and occasionally, you know, these kind of things. So when I think of the artifacts that I hold at this time, <laughs> I still haven't found the RuneQuest rules. <laughs> that you said. There was this particular edition that you had that uh, your father caringly photocopied for me and sent to me. I've never found that edition in the commercial market, which I find hmm. really very curious. You must have gotten somewhere between maybe second and third or somewhere between first or second, or maybe it was some Australian-only thing, but the stuff that I, you know, when I periodically see RuneQuest, and I have a couple of versions in front of me, they're not the same RuneQuest that you photocopied, so I'm not sure what happened in that story. But I think it's interesting, the whole notion of consumerism as a means of still getting these ideas out there, I think very much associated with music as well. You know, music has been incredibly powerful in terms of propagating a series of ideas, and the commercial success of the musicians enables, has enabled these ideas to propagate. So, yes, I do understand this very strongly, but I also feel if I can put anything out into this conversation, it is the notion that you can self-empower, create your own rules. The miniatures, unfortunately, are a beautiful addition, and the ability to have half a dozen miniatures and think, can I write rules for these miniatures, motivates me in a number of different settings. But, yeah, I do feel uneasy about the nature of this hyper-consumerism that seems to come with this thing in its success. The fear of missing out is a um, is, is something I think a lot of um, um, uh, mercantile activity tries to tap into. To go back, of course, to your original thing about uh, psychedelic art, mm. it does remind me how important visual elements are, or not just visual, sorry, but uh, also music <laughs> and uh, and um food is in <laughs> in the gaming experience yes you know you mentioned psychedelic art it was obviously something that you, you enjoy that art and it was something that came along 
at the same juncture as gaming for you. Oh, no, and it was far earlier. No, oh, it's like okay. Art for me was really viscerally, probably, I mean, up at earliest memories, earliest memories of staring at album covers, of looking into these things. My mother recalls putting up a lot of Escher around me as a baby. And it was actually these kind of things where you were looking at it and you were getting more out of the pictures than you got out of normal pictures. Like they had an additional depth of thought in them. And I think that is a phenomenon which predates actually uh, gaming for me by a number of years. But when I saw these elements, particularly in the artistry associated with the greenskins, but also in certain other artistry, I mean, the whole, it's interesting when you look at UK literature and where it comes from, because obviously prior to the 1960s, aside from opium um, and various other, you know, things that kind of tangentially came in, there wasn't a lot of chemical psychedelia, but there was a whole lot of free thought psychedelia that existed prior to that in literature. So what you find interesting is the writings associated with, like, Tolkien is clearly not psychedelic, but you move into, you know, writing after Tolkien, and these elements creep in very strongly, and then even, you know, even the nature of Roald Dahl, for example, very non-fantasy-based, you know, but also associated with childhood imagination. The role of this in the UK and the way that it created something that was quite dark, but incredibly socially introspective, versus what happened with regards to, you know, Gygax and co. in the US. If you look at these kind of cultural phenomena, which obviously music plays a very important role in as well, it really is fascinating, the evolution of like fantasy and science fiction in these various spheres and what these things meant in terms of creating, let's not use the N-word here, creating <laughs> law <laughs> within these various systems. The notion of what distinguishes, you know, Star Trek Troopers from Warhammer 40,000, what distinguishes the Alien series. Um, obviously, H.H. Uh, Giger's work is phenomenal in terms of its creation of kind of dark science fiction, dark technology, you know, strange genetically evolved species along particular lines. I mean, H.R. Giger's work impacted so much of science fiction in such a beautiful way. So returning to this idea, I think these are deeper concepts than just, you know, I was listening to, you know, Led Zeppelin and later Beatles at the time that I started, you know, having an interest in, in role playing. I think I have a kind of deeper cultural interest in how these things are, are created and how it fits into a narrative. Very similar, actually, I find to the way I spend time reading about details in history that other people mm -hmm. just find esoteric, but I find absolutely fascinating. So that is the narrative associated with my interest in psychedelia and wargaming and role-playing games together. I'm assuming that you don't see very much of it. I mean, I, with the exception of a, a particular card game, uh, of, of spell casting that I, I know of. There's not a lot of psychedelic art in contemporary board games, for example. Um, it, do, it does seem to be an art form which has not had a great revival. Maybe, maybe you're more aware than I am, but, um, it, uh, it, it hasn't really come back in a big way. If you look at the origins of a lot of these things. The origins of the greenskins, it's fascinating to me. If you take it from Tolkien and then project what came after Tolkien, Tolkien stuff associated with, uh, you know, mechanical fabrication, certainly mm -hmm. there's the kind of fungus element in there as well, but because they're organic creatures. But 
the nature of what the First World War did in Tolkien's writing, right? The impact of you know, brutal mechanization and mass killing and obviously industry feeding this thing, that is an element in Tolkien's writing. So he represents his age at a very particular point. The intellectual property that is generated through these periods exists after what you look like, oh, that's a kaleidoscope picture, you know. Psychedelia is not just a visual thing. It's a way of reconstructing elements in a society which perturb it in a variety of different directions. It's not uh, just the visual psychedelic art. It's the ideas and concepts which build from that into various, let's use the law term, I'm not going to use the N-word here, but law, which I think propagates through a lot of the cultural aspects. We talk about greenskins in terms of greenskin culture. comes in part through Tolkien, but also comes post-Tolkien. And a lot of that is uh, a reflection, almost a mirror, a greened mirror, but that explores various aspects of human character that are just accentuated in what propagates. And I think of that in a very, you know, <laughs> academic sense as being the embodiment of psychedelia in in non-visual form, if you see what I'm saying. So how did that come into the campaigns that you've run? Well, I, I have three or four different elements that I really like about the Greenskins. The first is the human perturbation element, which is fundamentally Tolkien. The, the Greenskins in in the law that I generate through my various campaigns are typically created by some miscreant mage or someone who wants to, you know, go out and, and colonize a vast area with a warlike race that is just going to be basically their stormtroopers. And that creates a narrative where the players have to discover these factories, usually in old ruins or things like that where this fungus is creating these humanoid creatures. And the nature of greenskin lore, and my particular perspective on greenskin lore, is pretty central to most of the games that I run, because I think that gives a fascinating kind of social analysis component to it. I also like the notion that players are constantly being lied to in terms of their general interactions, which isn't psychedelia, it's also you know embodied in... You know, mafia and these kind of things as well. But the notion that the narrative, sorry, let's not use the N-word here, the story <laughs> arc, the story arc that occurs in these things is about ultimately people questioning what suppositions they came to in the circumstance. And I find that very powerful as a kind of cathartic resolution, which also certainly my players are very receptive to. Another thing which isn't psychedelia, but I find very much associated with the UK specifically, is what I call the soap opera rule. The soap opera rule is you give people a goal, and then you perturb them as far from that goal as possible through various life circumstances that they reach. And that isn't, I wouldn't think broadly, I mean, that's more associated with Aristotelian catharsis than anything. But it's fascinating to create a narrative with perturbation sorry, create a story arc with perturbation. And that, I think, is also central. But there are elements, there are elements of certainly miscreant, you know, miscreant interplay, which has a kind of playful element to it as well. Have I answered your question? In many, many ways you have, yeah. It uh, does remind me again of my, uh, the, my, my current campaign, the idea that you have... Um, People in a situation 
um, and you are throwing all kinds of things at them to, to, to disturb them and to give them opportunities to react and to pull together the different parts of their character and their own view of the world. And that this is, uh, I think, one of the reasons why it's something that attracts this set of players, but also people in their teen years. It isn't just the escapism that I think some parents, at least at the time, labeled it as, but as a way of exploring identity um, in the way that I think, the way I perceive psychedelia does anyway, in that it's, you know, things are not the way they appear, and you, in order to uh, interact with it, you have to tease out of it the understanding that you can. And role-playing games, for me, now that I look back as an adult, operate on that level as well. It isn't just, uh, let's roll some dice and see if we can beat some monsters. You know, a good campaign is, is about the players exploring who they are through who they are not. And for me, that definitely has that sense of psychedelia in it, pulling the meaning out of things that are seem to have no normal meaning. My wife and I love watching television from the late 80s and early 90s, in particular mystery shows. Unsolved Mysteries is a favourite of ours, which we go back and watch periodically. But there are also various true crime you know, things from that period that we do find as well. We have an Amazon subscription which enables us to you know, spend an hour every other night basically watching these old things. What fascinates me through that period is the notion of demon worshipping and a variety of other things which were part of the media's description of role-playing at the time. Mm. What I find fascinating, which you put it out, but I want to say explicitly, is that early role-playing, really the first 15, 20 years of D&D in the US, D&D was marketed with the same kind of propaganda that drugs have been marketed in the war in drugs. It was something that was supposed to be evil. It was dangerous. It was going to break down the fabric of society. It's silly to say this now, but when you watch television from that period of time, that is exactly the narrative which is presented again and again and again. Mm-hmm. You know, there's someone who killed who mysteriously also had a D&D campaign. And, and these two things were so closely linked repeatedly. And this is a, this is a really curious thing because if you want something to be successful, look how successful drugs have been for <laughs> drugs mm. and market that. Use that marketing. Gygax has said, uh, you know, even posthumously now in the stuff that is written about him, that this was really important to early TSR that rather than I mean, although they attempted to squash it in a variety of different ways, it was actually a really successful marketing component for what they did as well. Mm-hmm. And as you said that, I thought this is another element of psychedelia <laughs> that has been used and certainly historically used very strongly. Now, I don't think that narrative would ever... I mean, it's interesting to have these these historical documents to go back and watch this television from this period to actually see how tightly connected these things were. They, they still <clears throat> use that um, that way of framing something that is new and seems to be catching on and that is very different, um, especially with regard to the young, anything that seems to capture the attention of the young. And so video games were, the connections were made between any kind of uh, poor behavior in video games for a long time, whereas, of course, the scientific research now is that Video games have no 
or essentially no connection with someone's propensity to violence or uh, anti-social activity, and in fact that there are many, many positives rather than negatives from video gaming. And uh, that was true, of course, of role-playing games and so much else of youth culture right down through time, uh, whether it was the fashion that people were wearing in the 1960s or you you have it so uh and i think it's still <laughs> it's still in use today you know we we have uh, uh social media as the current uh, bogeyman for uh how it it captures the imagination of the young and it's going to lead to all kinds of uh social disintegration and so forth and while of course there are some problems with devices and uh and social media um, and young people, it's not, it's not the, it's no, never going to be the terrible thing that it's often portrayed early on in the media. You had another you know, or, or issue that was brought up in one of your previous conversations. Uh, what kind of gamer are you? As if everybody has to, everybody in the in the gaming world sort of has to sort of a, identify themselves as a particular kind of a gamer. <laughs> um, and I, I thought that was a, that was a charming. That ought to be a fun thing to do. You know, sitting around with gaming friends and going, "What kind of gamer are you?" You know, what uh, uh, you know, like the the thing that these people used to do. What, what's your what's your porn star name? Or uh, maybe that's um, <laughs> you know but these kinds of things. Let's talk about archetypes because I mean I yes. certainly. I certainly use archetypes very heavily, less so now than I did maybe 10 years ago. And my perspective is that if you understand the, the gaming archetype of a particular player, you will probably be able to, well, as I've already described, stifle that in more curious and interesting ways. But more importantly, it gives you a frame of reference to how you can create scenarios around these kind of players. So... Yes. I think there's a there are two levels to this thing. The first is as a GM identifying players and player characteristics and being able to create follies around those characteristics. But more importantly, if you recognize that you are not a you know, everyone goes on one side, everyone goes on the other side, interested in those kind of games, then you immediately save yourself a bunch of time and money and interest. But you also start to realize that there are certain characteristics that you actually like through this thing. And rather than just, you know, finding all these rules and leaving it, you can find your own particular niche in whatever you're looking for. I mean, so I think the ability of having some self-awareness, particularly self-awareness that saves you time, frustration, but also puts you around people that are like-minded is probably a net positive. But I, it may have been satirized. I mean, you seem to be satirizing it perfectly uh, in the audio. I don't. I don't necessarily recalling the conversation. Think I felt that level of satire. But what say you to some of these ideas? Well, absolutely. As a as a, as a GM, understanding the kind of uh, archetype of your players is one key to unlocking a better campaign. You know, I I, I get that my son wants to be able to punch things. Right, he wants to be able to go into combat and successfully win in combat. Uh, and I realize that, uh, and that's, I'm not sure what name to give to that kind of archetype, <laughs> but he, you know, he's, uh, he's one of the role players who wants, sees the role playing game as a little bit more towards the, um, uh, board game mm. type of play. And then there are other role players which I do not have in my group 
who uh, very much see it as a way of 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 uh, of acting. Mm. You know, they they want to really want to role play out the interactions with the NPCs and the rest of the world. They want to put on the voices. They even come dressed in costumes, right? I've definitely played with those kinds of players before. <laughs> um, I don't have one of those, but if I did, I'd, I'd try and respond to that need, right? And I have an, uh, you know, another who wants to, and again, I don't know what name to give any of these archetypes, but she sees the role playing as a way to uh, identify the, 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 the person she would really like to be and the world she'd like to be living in. And so... I have to try and respond to those different archetypes. When, uh, when I think about that kind of modeling for gaming, the, the people who have probably done it the best are the people who produce Magic the Gathering. Mm. You know, and they've, they have, through their lead designer, a guy called Mark Rosewater, who's a very, very good writer about game theory as well, and, and quite funny, they've identified the three kinds of approaches to archetypes for Magic players. Uh, and they make sure, now that they know that, they make sure that every new set of cards that comes out, in addition to being many other things, visually beautiful and interesting storyline uh, or milieu, the cards having a certain degree of balance and so forth, that they've got cards in there that will please all of the archetypes so that everyone can see their their need being met within each new set, which, of course, ties back again into that other conversation about producing more and more things for people to buy. They come out with lots of sets each year. They want to make money, but they also need to make sure that each of these sets satisfies the need of the people who are buying it. And to that extent, they've had to understand the players and what their needs are. They're a terrific organization, I think, to look at for anyone looking at that kind of game theory. And, of course, they've been terribly successful with it on many fronts. Mm. Um, I don't pretend that my campaign is as successful as, as the producers of MTG, or as, um, but I certainly, you know, with, with play, when you know players are coming back again and again and again, week after week, and looking forward to a session, you are almost certainly crafting a campaign and nightly sessions where people's needs within that activity are being met and certainly being aware of my players needs has been a big help in crafting that i had this discussion with a gentleman in marwa new jersey i found myself in marwa new jersey because there was a local train convention they invited me to speak there but i did get out of the convention and wandered maybe a mile and a half to a friendly local games tour which had been in business for 30-plus years, I think 39 years. So really a beacon within the community. In fact, I was told about it by Model Rail Radio participants that said, you know, if you like game stores, you've got to check this one out. It wasn't big. It was actually a relatively small space. But the gentleman I spoke to was the son of the owner, probably in his mid-20s. And he was talking to me because I was the first one there to shop, you know, although there were a few regulars that came through while I was chatting with him. He had worked out, not only did they have Magic the Gathering, they also had five separate D&D campaigns that were tailored through the week for the specific players that they knew were going to come in. But we spent about an hour talking about how they had created this organ of success, which was evident within their shop. I mean, it was clearly an epicenter. But at the same point that they'd spent a lot of time working out what the local 
interests were. I was up in Berkeley a couple of weeks ago. I went into Games of Berkeley, which had changed its location, and I talked to one of the fellows there about historical wargaming. I said, you know, there are certain epicenters of historical wargaming in the Bay Area. Berkeley used to be that epicenter. And he said, all the players left. You know, we had a bunch of graduate students that would come and play. They all graduated, you know, got their PhDs or whatever, got out. And what was left was a, a younger generation, but certainly a younger generation that were interested in playing, you know, Warhammer 40,000 and a variety of other games. They had an amazing section of was third edition D&D Pathfinder. They had a, you know, a section of Pathfinder, but it, it, as a store had evolved over a decade, recognizing exactly where the various players actually came from and tailoring things specifically to them. And it's interesting, this combination of, of commerce and understanding, which mm-hmm. I found really fascinating. I mean, the fellow in Mawa, I could have spent much more time, unfortunately, with a group of model rail radio listeners that were going to take me out to lunch. And I just made this the meeting point. So I was like, okay, I'll meet you at this game store and then we'll go out to lunch. And um, so I only had limited time to talk with this gentleman. But what I found fascinating was you could see his father's influence in the store as well. Like his father had a special section for miniatures that he had painted, you know, of, of the year of the ogre that I sent you. And, you know, there were all these elements within the store of kind of immense complexity, but clearly working out, you know, these people are in this area, they are interested in playing these games. So I think it's fascinating to see this, not just at a kind of GM level, but also at an organic level that exists within these, you know, stores and these environments as well. Anyway. Know your audience. Exactly. It's what it comes down. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not a particularly new principle, but it applies in so many things, including, including gaming. The other thing I wanted to uh, discuss with you to get right back to your, <laughs> the, the title of, of your podcast is I have been often going on to the, um, the interweb, which is a terrific resource and has lots of forums on it where people discuss interpretations of rules from the most recent version of um, D&D and other games as well. And one of the things, because I'm sometimes looking for an explanation, I said, what do they mean by this? (laughs) Of course, I can make it up myself. I'm very happy to. Um, But I've often like, okay, well, what was what was meant by how people are, uh, what are the various interpretations? And one of the things that struck me is how tightly many players want to stick to the rules mm. and how they are supposed to be interpreted mm. and um, how little tolerance there sometimes is for going outside those rules. The, and and, and, and the, the term that seems to be used in the D&D community is the word homebrew mm. to represent um, you know, house rules. And the, the term seems even sometimes to be used in a pejorative sense. Mm. Uh, Whereas for me, you know, it's absolutely vital. You don't, I don't, you don't have a living, breathing, real campaign if you are playing the game QV. It, you've, you've got to be personalizing it, not just for you, but what you like as a GM, but what all your players want to be doing and achieving. I, it, it seems anathema to the very principle of a role-playing game that you would <laughs> stick to the set of rules. You know, I mean, we... I mean, I understand I, with with very new players, you've got a you know a, a bunch of thirteen uh, year olds. They pick up the 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 basic rule booklet in a little box, 
and they play the first few sessions absolutely as written, totally get that, no problem. But eventually you must be moving out. I mean, we never we never stuck with the magic system of D&D. You know, this idea that you would learn spells <laughs> is not just unfun because it's so clumsy. It doesn't reflect any of our feelings about what uh, what spell casting is, right? Do you imagine, I mean, can you imagine... Uh, well, it's supposed to be academics, uh, right? I mean, that's uh, the way it's written, that it's supposed to be some kind of academic <laughs> discipline that is, you know, I mean... That... Can you imagine Hermione Granger getting into this into this confrontation with something and going, oh, my goodness, I wish I'd memorized that this morning? No, you, you cast on the fly. It's all about your ability to... <laughs> to to impose your your will on the world through these arcane arts, but memorizing spells beforehand had no flavor. That the, the, the flavor of it did not jive with any of the fantasy literature we read or images of what a mate should be. And so, you know, we've gone through various iterations over the years, spell points and casting down and choosing whatever you want, whatever it is. But at the very, very, you know, something even as important as the magic system in D&D was like, that was quickly thrown out. Anyway, so it's just interesting. I know wondering whether or not the personalization of rule systems is something that is happening less now rather than more. I, I don't disagree with anything that you say. In fact, let me put this out here. I want to actually ask our listeners. I want to take this out of the realm of our conversation and put this to our listeners, because my perspective is that if anything were to define this podcast, it was exactly what you have stated. But I'm curious if we have any listeners who have persisted to this point that believe that the the importance of rules is to find exactly what was meant, exactly what was stated, and to play them accordingly. If you are this kind of listener, I will not threaten you with sending you lead, but I would say, please get in contact with me. My email address, barbele, bravo, alfa, romeo, bravo, alfa, lima, echo, tango, at gmail.com. Please email me, because my perspective is, if anything was a catalyst for this podcast, it was the notion that rules are there to be secondary to a wide variety of other experiences, and the interpretive nature of rules and the nuances of house rules and these kind of things is so important, so central to this whole thing. And I hope that I've instilled through the discussions in this podcast so far a sense that that is what this podcast is about. But I'm interested if there are any tournament Warhammer 40,000 players that believe that there are these that, that have somehow found this podcast, have listened up until this point. I want to hear from you because I think if you have followed this podcast and you have this belief system, you are the antithesis of what I thought this podcast would capture. So, Matthew, I think you've you've been drawn into this thing through like-minded, like-spirited essences that I've tried to leave through these various audio recordings, although you've satirized some of the discussions I've had with other folk today. I unfortunately do have other things that I have to do today, but I did want to conclude by saying it has been a real pleasure to have the chance to chat with you today. Are we out of your list of, of dot point topics, or is there anything... Oh, anything else could be uh, anything else could come up at a future conversation. Should that should that happen? <laughs> no, I, it most certainly should. Let us not even well, predicate that. It will I, happen. I would greatly look forward to it. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Tom, hearing your voice. Most definitely, yours as well, Matthew. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>